Hey, it's good to see everyone. I'm glad you're all here this morning. Please join me in prayer. Father God, King of heaven, the one and only true God, thank you for this time. Through your Holy Spirit, direct us to Christ, not just physically as we gather here, but in truth and in spirit. Help us to know your will as we feed off of your word as it's presented to us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. To start off, we have a video for you. It's about what we think of church and what church maybe should be. Sometimes when I feel really lost, I go to church. Yes, I go to church. Why do people go to church? I don't go to church. Some churches just want your money. Uh, Religions separate people. Okay, uh, first question, uh, why do people go to church? Well, I think people go to church because they um, they want to get close to God and they just feel like, you know, this is how we're going to talk to God. And I'd say I've, I've seen, especially with things like Easter and Christmas and those types of really big holidays, it almost seems like people do go kind of out of guilt of like, oh, I'm supposed to go, so I should go because something about Jesus is going on, so I might as well go to church. What do you think churches uh, really want from people? I think the say if you're speaking of the organized religious right in this country, I think it wants power. It wants control over people. It, it wants numbers. It wants bodies. I think I think church just wants to create a place where people can come together and worship and feel safe. I'm really not much of a church person, so I wouldn't know, but I'd say it's for the community mostly is to help other people. In your opinion, are churches a good thing? Oh yeah, yeah. Church as as a church are a good thing. It's just the people who um, end up becoming the leaders. They they all, they need to be good people, and that doesn't often happen. Church in and of itself is a great thing. It's just a matter of people distorting what it's supposed to be. I think having a spiritual understanding is is excellent, and I think there are many teachers out there that you could get that from and it's up to you as an individual to go out and educate yourself and to learn from Jesus and Buddha and you know all these teachers from our past that had you know you know good things to say about how to live your life why do you think people should help churches why do I think people should help churches? Because it's a, it's a strong influence in the community. It's definitely something that does good. It's not, I mean, that's not people that are going to be putting drugs in the streets or causing kids to do bad in school. You know, it's definitely a good influence. So any good influence that we can get on top of all the bad things that are out there is definitely important and needs to be supported. They benefit more from helping the church out. But, you know, the church could be using them. You know, the church could be using their, their time, power, money for their own um, greed. You know, a church could get something out of it, and you know, thing nowadays is you don't know about. It. I mean, the, the the reverend or the priest can keep you, he, your eyes shielded from what what really goes on, because you really don't know what goes on uh, through those doors. 
Um, do you go to church? And if so, what is your involvement? Um, I go to church, um, I'd say occasionally, not necessarily frequently. And um, just um, I try to support the, the youth groups mostly. Just I think that uh, it gives a very um, strong value base and they need that. Kids nowadays need that as much as possible. Very peripheral. Uh, we show up once in a while. My involvement with the church is to try to understand the word and to try to get it out to, to teach the word because that's what he wants us to do. He wants us to learn it and he wants us to be a living testimony. Go to church usually when I need some kind of guidance or support and you know one of my faults is that whenever I feel like oh I don't need church I don't go. And you said you don't go to church? No, I haven't for, I mean, I have a couple times with my family because there's a lot of my you know, family members that are religious and I do go with them to be respectful and I don't have anything against it, but it's not exactly for me. I don't go to church. Uh, no, I don't go to church. Good morning. Good morning. Wow, what a great group. Thanks for joining us this morning. My name is Dion, if I've not had a chance to, to meet you yet. Um, and I certainly do appreciate you spending some of your holiday weekend with us as we discover a little bit about church. <laughs> That's a great video. Um, the Man, it just kind of, it really fascinates me, the, the variety and the wide opinion of churches. You know, church is good, for some, a church is not so good. For others, people do go, they don't go. There's a whole lot of reasons behind this. Um, and it is a great question. The question that they ask of why do you go to church, I think, is a very important question that we should always be, be really be able to answer for ourselves and for other people when we're asked. So let me just ask you guys, and please, you don't have to, like, shout it out, <laughs> but why do, why do you go to church? You know, what brought you to church, whether it's Crossroads or another church inside of your, inside of your life, um, what brought you there to begin with, started the process of coming? Um, what brings you guys here every weekend? Now, we know now it's probably the coffee and donuts. <laughs> coffee and donuts are back. It's all good. It's all good. Um, but what brings us here every weekend? Why is it so important for us to be here? And so, you know, as we think about this, we also have to realize that we also know people, people that we love, people that we're very close to, um, who also don't go to church, and they have their reasons as well. And so for those, you know, the, in the variety of reasons why they may not go, there's a good possibility that one of the reasons they don't go is because they view church as rigid um, structure, rules, legalistic religion, and they're just really not into that. Okay, so if that's the case, um, it's my hope that today, as we are continuing in our series, as we have our travel log, and, and this week we're traveling to Jerusalem with Jesus, that what we will hope to explore and learn together is that when it comes to church, that Jesus' Jesus's purpose 
wasn't to come to this earth to preach religion and legalistic rules and be rigid in structure, um, although he adhered very much to his father's word. But really what he came here to, to bring to us is relationship, relationship with God and him and relationship with others. And that that path to God through Christ often comes through the church, his church, the church that he set up while he was here. And so we see from the very beginning that he tells us that the greatest command, one of the greatest commandments is we, have, we must love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. But the other is equally as important is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And this is what we get to do together as a church. And so I'm excited to be able to do this together and learn together about all of this. Um, okay, so when I asked you the question, what brought you to church? We probably had a few different answers um, that might have popped in our head. You know, for some of us, we may have come because we were looking for answers. Answers about God, answers about life, trials, certain things that are going on. Some of us may have come because we needed help in a hurting marriage or a hurting relationship. And we were looking for counseling and support and some, some, good, um, some good direction for that. Um, others may have shown up because they're struggling with addiction. Um, could be as simple as someone invited us. Someone invited us for Crossroads. One of the one of the big things that we get return customers on is after there's been a memorial. And I know this really kind of sounds weird, but when someone has, has has attended a memorial, what do we normally think of? We think of our own mortality, and so we have a tendency to start seeking answers and looking to our to our eternal future. And then, of course, the you know we also could just simply have grown up in the church. It is part of our, it's a part of our DNA. It's something that we do, and we wouldn't know to do anything else. But as we as we ask that question of ourselves, and we think about that, and we have it on our mind, we also have to answer or ask the question: What is the role of the church? What was God's plan for it initially? And so, it's my hope that we're going to take a look at that as we walk through Jerusalem with Jesus because one of the most important aspects of Jewish life was the temple. And for them, the temple is what, you know, for what church is to us. It was the center of society and everything flowed from there. And we're going to dig a little into that, dig into that a little bit deeper. But as we start, which is kind of want to remind ourselves if, if you weren't able to join us last week. You can always um, check out past messages on our website. Um, you can also check out our app that Brian talked about, also has past messages. But last week, you know, we were in Galilee with Jesus, and we, we w walked with him as he was calling his disciples, these 12 very unlikely men that he chose from fishermen to tax collectors to political zealots to all these different guys, and he, he calls them to, to basically walk with him, to learn from him and learn how to change the world. And so these were his disciples. So we went to Galilee. And to these men, he gave the responsibility and the privilege to make sure that everything that Jesus taught them, that they would be able to continue on his message after he had returned to heaven. And so during this time, as they're, as they're walking together and Jesus is teaching them, you know, he's, he's asking his disciples, he says, well, who do the people say that I am? And so for some of them, they said, well, some say, you know, one of the prophets or Elijah, but Peter, one of his, 
one of his closest disciples. And I love Peter because he's kind of a shoot first, ask questions later kind of guy. And I can kind of, <laughs> I can kind of get on board with that because sometimes my mouth gets me in trouble. Um, but he says to Peter, he asks him the question, and Peter is the one who answers, says, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. Now, this is huge. This is huge for Peter to be able to say this because when he asks this, what, what we're seeing is that Peter has come to the reality that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah that the Jews had been waiting for. For hundreds, thousands of years, they've been looking for him. And it's on that truth, it's on that rock, when, when Jesus says to him, I say that you are Peter, and the word Peter means rock, that on this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Hell's going to try to, but nothing can conquer Christ's church. And so that rock, the truth of, of Christ being the Messiah is the foundation, that Jesus is the foundation of the church from which everything else is built. Now, interestingly, this is actually the first time the word church is being used in the New Testament. And the word itself is in the Greek is actually ecclesia. That word simply means group or gathering. So we are a group of people. We are a church. We are a gathering. It's not the structure. It's not the building. It's not the organization itself. And so it almost appears that Jesus deliberately chose a word without a distinctly religious meaning. He was separating what he came to do from what, from what they would have been familiar with and what we know. Um, not that he was trying to undo it, but just focusing on the true, the true meaning of it. So for about three years, Jesus and, his, and these 12 amazing men, they, they live in intimate community. They, while Jesus is teaching them the true meaning of the law and the commandments of God, they, they were, in, in a way, really, so to speak, they were the first church. These guys did everything together. They ate together, they slept, they walked, they traveled, they learned all of this. They were a community. And so as we skip ahead a little bit, now that we've got kind of this picture of Jesus and his disciples and they're learning all of this, um, we get to the point where when Jesus was crucified and resurrected. Now, if you continue walking with us through our travel log, um, Jesus, this week as we're going through Jerusalem, we're going to hit on some points and some things that he did while he was there. But but the time that we're spending together basically happened the week before he was crucified. And I will say, please, re please um, join us next week and stay tuned because next week we're going to travel to Golgotha, which is actually the place where Jesus was crucified. And so we get the rest of the story, if some of you know what I mean by that. <laughs> Here's the rest of the story. And so skipping ahead a little bit, after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, this would have been during the time of the Passover when that happened. Thousands of Jews would have traveled to Jerusalem, gathered together. Um, they would have been there for quite a period of time. And as they had celebrated the appointed feasts that God had commanded, and so they're all there together. There's a ton of people. All these believers are there together. And what we find is that the believers stayed there, they stayed together, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals. Now, mind you, they were there together, so they would have had to have helped support one another. It's like, you know, imagine if you um, decide to go on vacation for a very long trip, and for some reason, your trip gets extended by about, I don't know, two, three weeks or so, and you didn't pack enough stuff. 
Now you got to go to the store, buy some things. Well, they didn't have that here. So they came together as a community. They stayed together in one another's homes. They shared everything that they had. But here's what's happening. The believers, the ones who believed in Christ and who he was, they worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They, they listened to the apostles' teaching. They shared their meals with great joy. I mean, so what, what these verses do is often used by churches to show like the gold standard of what the church should be. You know, we don't really understand that anymore, do we? I mean, I don't know about you guys, but how would you feel if we just like all showed up at your house today? for lunch. <laughs> Everybody's like, no, <laughs> no, that's not, you know, I got somewhere to be. <laughs> We're not used to that kind of life in community anymore. And although that is really, you know, something that, gosh, you know, for me, I mean, it's something that I look at and it just, it fascinates me. And I think it would be so amazing to be able to kind of rekindle that kind of community as a church and just doing things together. And I know there's a lot of you guys that you do. You, you do things together as a Bible study and as family and as friends. Um, but we see this incredible picture of this close-knit community. And what the, the outflow of this, so we start to see the, 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 the workings of the gathering, the ecclesia, and how they, how they lived together. This wasn't in place of church. So you notice they all still gathered together at the temple each day, the temple where they would have gone to worship. Um, they didn't change it. They just, this is the lifestyle. And what happens is, is that as they live in this way, what, the, what part of the outcome is, is that as they praise God and they're living in this way, they're enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And I think that's another thing that we don't quite understand these days either, is that Christians don't always enjoy the goodwill of all the people. We're not necessarily seen as a group like this anymore. And so the Lord added to their fellowship each day as they were being saved. And so we just see this incredible picture of what church life was supposed to be like, what God set up from the very beginning and what we can take from it and bring into our lives today that, that God and church and Christianity is not just for Sundays anymore. And so we're going to learn some more about that. And that brings us to today because um, it has been said that the local church is the hope of the world. Now, do you believe that to be true? That the local church, no matter where the local Christian church is, is actually the hope of the world. And I think that is true. I mean, I know that, that for myself, this church has been an absolute life changer for myself, for my family. You know, and, I, and I'm not just trying to be weird about it and, you know, and say Crossroads is the end-all be-all. But, I mean, God has used this church, and not just in my life, but I know many lives sitting here. The, the power of God that has worked through. And, and the local church is the hope of the world. And what that means is that Crossroads Community Church, aside from all the other churches, you know, besides the other churches in town, but for us, because we're here, Crossroads Community Church is the hope of the world, which means the people sitting here right now are volunteers upstairs, our leaders, the kids, our tech guys, our coffee folks, you are the hope of the world, guys. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure at all. So 
I mean, because that was, that was Jesus' purpose, his, that through his church, the Christian church, that Jesus spent so much time building that the presence, the very presence of God would be seen, that, that as people interact with us, as they drive by, as they know us, as, as we're doing this, that the very presence of God would be seen and felt and heard. And that they would know that we are an open door for anyone to come in regardless of age and regardless of position and regardless of money and regardless of how we're dressed and how we look and how we talk, regardless that the doors are open and we are welcome, that this should be a safe place to come in and to settle and to heal and become part of a family. And see, in Jesus's time, that's what the temple really ultimately was meant to be. In Jesus' day, for the Jewish people, their place of worship was, and actually still is, um, the temple, or their, uh, right now would be their local synagogue. Um, but the temple, the temple that was in Jerusalem, was the most important place for them. It was the most holy place to them. And so to better kind of understand this a little bit, we're going to just take a brief, um, a brief history lesson, a very brief history lesson. So this all really kind of started back in the days of Moses, when, when God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. Um, during this time, you know, he brings them out. He has provided for them with food. He has made his presence known by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of smoke by day. So God does us this tremendous favor because as human beings, how, how good are we at trusting? Not very good. And sometimes we really struggle even trusting God because we're trusting and something that we, we're, we're tangible. We want to put our hands on it. We want to be able to see. We want to be able to feel. And so, you know, God loves his people. And so he does this, this wonderful favor. He makes his presence visible, the visible presence. And so as they go through and they're traveling along, ultimately comes to the point where God has them build a holy sanctuary so that, or a tabernacle, a tent, and it's furnishing so that it would be a place for God's people could gather together and to worship him and to offer sacrifice and where God's presence would dwell inside the temple or the tabernacle. There was an inner area where only the high priest could go called the Holy of Holies. And this special area was where the Ark of the Covenant with the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, um, also Aaron's bed and a container of manna, the food that he provided, would have been kept. It was like this, this box to remember the holiness and the presence and the provision of the Lord. And so this is where... This is where we kind of start. Now, this wasn't for God. God. God doesn't need a building. God doesn't need all of this, but he knows we do. And so he gives us this opportunity and this ability to have this place to go to. And so now it starts then, but we fast forward several hundred years, and David, God's chosen king over his people, Israel, David goes and he goes to Bethlehem, um, which is right next to Jerusalem. So he's, he's king over Israel and Jerusalem. Um, and his desire, now David's desire, after all of this is said and done, they bring the, the tabernacle, the ark, the ark of the Covenant in. And I love David's heart in this. So David, he gets settled in his, in his palace, and he's got this great place to live. And he, said, he, he calls his, the prophet Nathan, um, who was, he was, they were very close. Um, David says to him, he's like, man, I'm living in this gorgeous home, but the ark, you know, God, the ark of the Covenant is out there in a tent. 
It's it's like we put our Bible in the doghouse. I don't know, maybe that's how we thought of it. But he he's genuinely wants to honor the Lord by building him this incredible temple, a place to um, be able to take place of the tabernacle. But, but here's what happens. God tells David that basically because David was a man of war, um, he spent many, many years in battle and he shed much blood. He was a man of war. God told him that you won't be the one to build my temple. I'm going to choose your son Solomon. Solomon will be the one to build the temple for me. And so... This is what he tells him, and, and we see in the scriptures here that that's what um, God told David, that his son Solomon would be the one to do this. And so as we, you know, as we look throughout history, when it comes to the temple in Jerusalem, the temple, oddly enough, Jerusalem means peace or place of peace, not very peaceful. <laughs> Over history, the temple has been captured, it has been profaned, it has been destroyed, it has been rebuilt, it has been destroyed, it has been rebuilt. So I think I made one more too many. Um, And currently, we know that at the current moment, the actual temple does not stand. And next to where it would be is what we're familiar with is the Dome of the Rock, um, the Muslim shrine over there. Um, But here's the thing. The people in Jerusalem are devoutly, they are devoted to God. There's many, many devoted Jews. Now this picture here is actually um, at the Western Wall. This was actually Passover of this year. So this is, you see that people are still tremendously committed. They're tremendously devoted to their tradition and to going. And at Passover, they traveled to the Western Wall. I can't even imagine how many people would be there. How cool would it be if like, could you imagine if we had this many people at church? (laughs) Actually, we did once. It's interesting. Um, you know, we're going to be honoring 9-11 here in a couple of days. The 20th anniversary. Can you, can you believe that? 20 years. I find it really rather ironic. Never mind, I'm not going there. Um, 20 years 9-11 happened. That weekend, I remember that weekend so, that whole week, I just... I remember it so distinctly, partly because, you know, it was very personal for all of us who live in Ridgecrest because we are a military town. So we felt the, the ripple effect of all of that, as many, many people did, the tragedy that took place. Now, the thing of it is, is that um, that weekend at church, we had almost a thousand people attend church. Now, just to kind of give you some perspective of that, when all the chairs are set up in this room and they're all filled, it's about 400, 450. These guys were out the door, up the stairs, standing everywhere in the library. I mean, people came to church. Why? Because we were scared. We didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know what was happening. And, and to them at that point, church is a safe place. It's a place to find answers. It's a place to find hope. And, 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 and that's what God really intended for the temple. It, it wasn't just do this, do this, do this, do this, and check off all these boxes of how you're supposed to exercise your religion. It was about faith. It was about relationship. It's about safety, and it's about hope. And I love the fact that although so many Jewish people are still looking for the Messiah, they don't necessarily believe 
that the Christ who was crucified and resurrected was the Messiah. They're looking for someone different. Their heart and their devotion still compels them to go. Now, the interesting part, too, um, and this is actually Bill's wheelhouse, and so I'm sure he'll talk about it next week, is that, and, and actually this takes us to the end of the series, too, so stay tuned for that as well, is the fact that um, there had been two temples built. The, most, the latest one was from, from Herod during Jesus' time, but the prophecy is that the Jews are still waiting for the time when they will be allowed to rebuild a third temple, that at some point... Um, when the Antichrist comes in and a peace treaty is made, that they're going to be allowed to rebuild and start resume the temple activities of sacrifice and all of this stuff. And it's my understanding that they're actually, they're so ready that everything is done. They've got the tools, the instruments, all the stuff that they would need. And so when they're told they can do this, boom, it's going to happen. And so it's really kind of interesting about all of that. But the point is, is that there's been a very long, rich history of the Jewish temple because for them it was the center of life and society. This is just kind of a rendering of what um, the temple would have looked like about during Jesus' time. Um, that particular one would have been built by Herod the Great over a period of about 46 years. And it took up about 35 acres. So, I mean, the place was huge. And so you'll notice if you if you look at it, there's you know the outside wall, and then there's the outside courts, and then inside is the actual temple with, and it's got its specific courts for specific groups of people. But then in the smaller building where the high priest would go is what we were talking about, the Holy of Holies, and where the Ark of the Covenant sat. So this is about what it could have looked like. Um, and so each year, as Jesus. Um, during his lifetime, each year, Jews from all over, um, all over the region, including Jesus and his family, starting from infancy all the way through his, his entire life, would travel to Jerusalem during the appointed feasts. And we especially read times about when Jesus came to Jerusalem during the time of the Passover. Passover. And there's there's, during that particular time, there's actually um, three appointed feasts that are kind of back to back to back to back, which is, it bring, brings the people together for quite a bit of time. Um, and so we see that Jesus' parents, they were good Jewish parents, they went to Jerusalem for the Passover, and we start to begin to understand Jesus' understanding and his passion for his heavenly father and for, his, and for the temple and for the word. Because after the celebration was over, they start home, you know, Mary and Joseph start home, and three days go by, and they realize, hmm, we haven't seen the Son of God in a couple days. <laughs> I cannot fathom. It's like you get, like, nauseous and heartbroken when you, when, you, when you can't see your kid right away, but, you know, they have the Son of God. I'm like, oh, my goodness, how do you handle that? So, I mean, but the point, the, the thing is, is that everybody would have traveled together. It was a huge community, so it wouldn't have been a big deal for the kids to just be running back and forth between families because you knew they were being taken care of. And again, you know, we see these incredible things in a life that we don't always understand this anymore because our world, you know, we're not in such a safe world anymore. We wouldn't do that. But they were able to do that. So they go back, they backtrack, and they go back. And where do they find him? But they find him in the temple. 
sitting among the religious leaders, learning and asking questions, and, and to the point where they were absolutely amazed by him. Because, you know, Jesus at this point, they, they say he was probably around 12-ish years old. So you imagine your average junior higher, <laughs> which if you have one... <laughs> You realize the challenge is there, but here Jesus is just blowing the minds of everybody because this was his passion. And so he takes that passion and, and he, he grows up with it and he teaches it, but he teaches it the way God intended. Now, I particularly, here's a little nugget of trivia. trivia. Um, I don't even know what made me look at this, but tomorrow is actually the, cel- the Jewish celebration of Rosh Hashanah. Tomorrow is the Jewish New Year. It's a two-day um, celebration, and for them, it's their New Year. So it's a great time of celebration, and they, and they you know, will be celebrating this tomorrow. What I find even more interesting is what this actually does is it begins a 10-day period leading up to the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, which is Yom Kippur. So a few days after 9-11, and a few days after we have the message on Golgotha, and Christ's death and resurrection on the 15th is Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. That is a day where all Jews are to take a step back and reflect, and reflect on the sin in our lives, to repent, to turn back to the Lord. It's a very, very somber day for them. And I don't know about you guys, but with the way the world is going right now, I think we could probably use a little bit of that ourselves. So I kind of geeked out on that. I hope you do too. <laughs> but just kind of keeping these things in mind. So Jesus grows up with this. The, you know, he grows up in the local synagogue, you know, learning the law, traveling to Jerusalem, celebrating the Passover. We could probably, if we really want to just bring it to our own vernacular, just say that Jesus was a church kid. You know, he grew up in the church. He grew up in all of this. And, you know, for us as Americans, some of you guys might, might remember the time in American history where church was actually the center of society with much of the same traditions that we see in Jesus' time. You know, the worship, the celebration, the learning. You know, the church was such a huge part of because the, the Bible was the foundation of this country. The biblical principles were the foundation of this country. And so for the church, you know, the American life in the home and our families and our education and our government, all of this was based on this center and, you know, and being a light to the world and an invitation. And sad to say, you know, as we all know, that's not necessarily the case so much anymore. You know, even for us, as we, you know, as the years have gone by, you know, I mentioned about 9-11. Oh, by the way, just so that you know, when 9-11 took place, we had almost 1,000 people that first weekend. Every weekend consecutively after that, 200 people less. 200 people less. So in a month's time, we were back to our normal, our normal, um, our normal numbers, which was really kind of interesting to me. Um, but the fact is, is that even now, you know, those... Our world has walked away from God's principles and God's ways for so long that some of our young kids don't even know why people go to church on Christmas. They don't know what Christmas is for. 
So we see fewer and fewer families attending Christmas services and Easter services because they've even lost the understanding of the tradition of doing it. So this, you know, this is how far we've come from this. Now, when it comes to Jesus's time, as we take a look at, you know, the role of church in our life, um, just as the local church is the hope of the world, the local synagogue and the temple in Jerusalem was to be the hope of the world as well. It was the very presence of God. Now, to un- kind of help us understand the similarities between Jesus's world and our world is that because of the the other nations and the other influences between Greece and Rome and Persia and all the things that the people have gone through, the influences there, these guys would have been very, very familiar with the fact of pagan religions and temples and gods. They would have been doing a lot of the same things, you know, going and making sacrifices and doing all kinds of stuff in the pagan temples. So it was vitally important that God's temple be different, stand out, be a light to show that he was the one true God, which meant that the people had to be different. And so here we see, um, this is one of a, a snapshot in time where we see Jesus doing that. Jesus being different, not breaking the law, not trying to teach people to go against God's law, not interpreting it to mean something else, but the true interpretation of the law of love and what the temple, what the church was meant to be. So again, it's nearly time for Jewish Passover. The passage in John 5, it says that afterward he returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Um, It wasn't Passover, but um, it just shows that Jesus continued to follow the law of God. Um, Inside the city near the Sheep Gate was the pool of Bethesda. Um, When we were looking at the picture of the temple, the pool of Bethesda would have been on one of the I'll show you when we get to the diagram later. (laughs) Um, But there was this pool, and tradition stated that at this pool where the water was and the the porches all around it would have been lined with people who were sick and lame and paralyzed, hoping to be healed. Because tradition stated that when when the waters of the pool stirred, that an angel would come and stir it, that the first one into the water would be healed. So there was a lot of people around there looking for healing, They're at the temple looking for healing, but they're looking for healing in this water. So Jesus comes, and there's this guy. He'd been sick for 38 years. I don't know if he'd actually been there for 38 years, but he had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus sees him, Jesus knew, and he knew that he had been ill for a long time, so he asks the obvious question, Would you like to be well? Okay, what do you think the guy said? (laughs) Nah, I'm good. (laughs) I doubt it. (laughs) I doubt it. Okay, so let's kind of wrap our brains around this really quick. The man had been sick for 38 years. He had been lying there with a group of people desperately hoping to become well. He's there, probably like a lot of them, hoping to get healed one way or the other, he cannot earn a living because he, he can't move. So this man, a lot of times the guys would go, they would be at the temple begging because if you can't earn a living, you cannot support your family. I don't know what this guy's backstory is, but the fact is, is that he's desperate. He's absolutely desperate. There's no one to carry him to the pool when the water, when the water stirs. Now, think about the fact that in the time that he was there, 
how many people walked by him every single day? How many times did the priests and the religious leaders and Jews and whoever walk by these guys every day or frequently at the very least? I'm not real sure what happens, but, you know, sometimes that happens in our own life. We might be the guy who needs healing. And there's somebody walking by us every single day. We might be the people walking by. This isn't a guilt trip. This is just a perspective of keeping in mind that we have to be aware of what's going on around us. You know, the interesting part in this is that Jesus asks him, would you like to get well? It seems like an obvious question. So Jesus, um, he, he heals him. He says, stand up, take up your mat and walk. That simple. How cool is that? Just boop, take up your mat and walk. And so instantly the man is healed. He rolls up his sleeping mat and he begins walking. He obeys Jesus. He does what he tells him to do. However, there's a big problem. It happened on the Sabbath. Oh my goodness. It happened on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders objected. Now, keep in mind, we got we to gotta be okay with the fact that for the Jewish leaders, they loved God. Before we get too judgmental, we understand they did love God. They, they were devoted to keeping his law. But sometimes for some people, somewhere along the line, our love for the Lord and our devotion, if we're not really, really careful, our compassion for the lost and sinners turns into legalism. And we become more concerned about following the rules than love. And it's a, it's a good balance of not tolerating sin, but having the compassion to help people out of it. And that's what Jesus came to do. And so, you know, Jesus says, don't, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. He came to accomplish their purposes. And so here we see Jesus healing on the Sabbath. The, Sab- the fourth commandment is, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And so there were rules to say that you were not to do any work on the Sabbath, even to the point of, you know, carrying things long distances. But see, again, just like God doesn't need the temple because he needs a building to live in, the Sabbath wasn't for God, as Jesus would say, that God, you know, man um, is not for Sabbath, but Sabbath for man. It's our time to focus and worship and, and learn, and this is such a huge subject, but we're going to focus on this. And the point is, is that Jesus healed this guy, and the leaders are like flipping out because it was a Sabbath. No celebration, no joy. Could you imagine? How would you feel if you were the guy? All of a sudden, you're like, woohoo, I can walk, and you get in trouble for it. <laughs> I mean, this is, a, this is a miracle. This is phenomenal. And so, unfortunately, what had happened over time is that rule after rule after rule after rule was added to the commandments, added to the Sabbath commandment to the point that it's, it's said that the rabbis of Jesus' day would often argue that even a man um, carrying a needle inside of his robe was sinning. Because they took it from walking to 
walking this distance to you can't bend over and pick this up. You can't, I mean, it's, it was just crazy how it was, how it was, um, so much was added to it. And so Jesus says to the crowds, so we see him, you know, telling him, Jesus says to the crowds and to his disciples, um, this is one of the learning points because he didn't come to abolish the law. Now, mind you, the, the disciples are, have learned the law as well. So they're probably trying to look at him like, ooh, okay, how is he going to explain this one? Because this is kind of a biggie biggie. And Jesus says to the crowds and his disciples, and, and he says this is a warning to the teachers of the religious law, and he says, you know, the interpreters of the law are Moses. He's telling them, practice and obey what they tell you, but don't follow their example because they don't practice what they preach. Oh, yeah, see, we all know that one, right? <laughs> practice what you preach. So Jesus never told them, disobey them. He just said, don't, oh, don't live it like they're living it. Live it how I'm showing you. So, so this is something to take into our own lives, especially when we understand, as we, we're going to talk about really quick, the, the, our role in this. You know, because the fact is, is that when we're hurting, when we're in need, and we come to the church for compassion, when people come into the crossroads, and when they come into the office throughout the week, or somebody's new here on Saturday night or Sunday, and they're looking for compassion and hope, there's nothing more heartbreaking if, if they're met with a hard heart and judgment or just, you know, closed down. We can't do that because Jesus came to save the lost. He came to save the broken. He came to save the sinner. And, 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 and that's what we are. That's what we are. And so, yeah, it's true. Sometimes people take advantage of the church. You know, they may have no intentions of making any effort to change, but that doesn't remove the fact that, that our response should always be compassion and mercy because that's how, what Jesus meets us with. And so, so what this means for us is that the, the life of being different when we talk about the role of the church and what Jesus was trying to teach people, teach the disciples, and as he was going through Jerusalem, what he was trying to show them in that one particular moment, and that was just one of many, is that we're to be different. We're to be salt and light in the world. <clears throat> he says that we're to be salt of the earth, but he says, what good is salt if it loses its flavor? And that we are to also be light. We're to be like a city hidden on a hilltop. You know, something that can't be hidden. Because no one lights a, a, a lamp and then, and then hides it under a basket. And so the whole point is, is that our difference is to be noticeable. Absolutely noticeable. And what does that even look like? Well, you know, part of it is just by virtue of not participating in the things that's normal for the world. I was, you know, talking to some friends about, you know, they've got kids in high school, and, um, you know, they go into public school, and a, ch a, a Christian kid, you know, going into a classroom where their, their difference is simply not doing things that the other kids are doing. And the kids are noticing. Why don't you cuss? Why don't you listen to that music? Well, how come you dress like this? Because their difference is noticeable. And see, and that's what Jesus calls us to do is the, is the presence of God inside of the world as a church because we're the church when we walk out these doors. We don't stop being church because we leave here with our donut and coffee. We're the church at Walmart. Ooh, that's a hard place to be the church sometimes. <laughs> right? 
Oh my goodness. You can be salty at Walmart, but not in the wrong way. Don't be salty at Walmart. But we're to be salt. We're to be, we're to be different. And so here's an interesting thing about this. We know what salt does with food, right? <clears throat> it enhances the flavor. But we also know if you put too much on, it'll absolutely ruin what you're eating. Um, but we're to enhance. We're to you know, bring flavor, so to speak, to the world. But here's what I find so interesting. If Jesus says what good is salt, if it has lost its flavor, what that means is it can lose its flavor. But how does that happen? So here's the fun little nerd nugget for you. Salt can lose its flavor. The, the chemical compound of sodium chloride can actually be lost. The saltiness can be lost under certain circumstances. One is when other chemical impurities are introduced. So you add something to it. There's something about the, the process that um, the impurities come in and it, it loses its flavor or dilution. You put enough water in a teaspoon of salt, eventually it's not going to be salty, Right? We can lose our ability to be effective as Christians by our own doing. When we allow impurities into our life, what would the impurities be? Certain, certain movies, certain music, certain ways of living, certain things that we're doing, it's an impurity that's introduced and we become, we become lacking in flavor or we dilute by trying to live both in the world and as a Christian. Our, the presence of God isn't so much felt anymore because we're deluding ourselves. Deluding and deluding. <laughs> Think of that one. <laughs> you know, and it's the same thing with light. When we light a candle, if we cover it completely, what happens to the flame? Burns out. It burns off all the oxygen and it, it just simply goes out. And so, you know, for us, you know, Christians, we can lose our flavor when we allow complacency and apathy and compromise and hypocrisy and legalism, all of that stuff creeps in, you know, and we can be doing good deeds, but if it's done to praise ourselves instead of the Father and, and they're done without compassion or mercy, we're talking about our flames going out, we're talking about being flavorless salt, and so we have to be so careful with that. So, this is kind of what, this is what Jesus is teaching us. This is what Jesus was trying to teach the people as he's in Jerusalem. He's, he's got his disciples and he's doing this and he's showing them how to be different. And so then in this particular passage in Matthew, there's actually two accounts of Jesus doing something really radical in the temple where he goes in and he cleanses the temple. Now I know a lot of times, um, in the teachings, the focus is on Jesus's anger in the temple in this area, and that's a lesson that's used. But I don't, I don't necessarily want to look at that because what I see here is Jesus's passion and love for God in the temple is really what's behind all of this. So this particular passage is ha happens the week, the last week of his life on earth. So he's coming into Jerusalem. Um, the crucifixion is actually going to end up only being a couple of days away. He enters the temple, and what happens is he begins to drive out all of the people. He comes in, and he sees what's going on. There's multitudes of merchants inside the, the court of the Gentiles, the outer courts of the temple, and they're selling um, approved sacrificial animals, and they're selling the approved temple coin. Because like I said earlier, thousands of people would be coming from all around. And so rather than trying to haul all this stuff with them, they would purchase it when they got there. 
right? You know, we know. So you go on vacation sometimes, like, man, I don't want to pack my toiletries. I'm just going to go buy it when I get there. Well, it's kind of the same thing. And so what's happening is the place is just crowded with all of this stuff, and there's these animals and the noise and everything that's going on, but the merchants are, are dishonest. And so the prices of everything are just, you know, they're just gouging the people and there's all of this stuff going on. And so Jesus goes in and he just clears everything out. And he's telling them, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. And, and it, you know, he says that the temple was to be a place of prayer for where all the nations, where all the nations could come. So let me just kind of give you an idea of what's happening here. So you look at the temple, the diagram here, um, down towards the bottom, it might be a little bit hard for you guys to see, but down towards the bottom, it says court of the Gentiles. And so this is where this takes place. Now, the reason this is such a huge issue is because this is the only area of the temple where believing and seeking Gentiles, those who are not Jewish, can go to worship and pray. And they can't because the merchants are there. And not only that, but the, the religious leaders are allowing it. I mean, what if we allowed Starbucks? Well, that's a bad idea because you guys would be okay with that. <laughs> uh, think of something like we put them like right out front and nobody can get in unless they buy something. You know, here it is Sunday. You want to come to church, but you can't unless you buy something. I mean, it was... It was disruptive. It hindered true-seeking people from coming in. And so you see there's the court of the Gentiles. And just for knowledge, up at the top, at the very, very top, that's the pool of Bethesda. So it's, it's, that kind of just put your mind where the guy was when Jesus healed him. But this is what happened. And so it's in this area that, <clears throat> that this was happening. They were hindering people from seeking God. So even inside of their worship, even inside of their, their desire to follow God, they were actually hindering people from seeking God. And you know what? This can still happen today because it's still possible that people wanting to come to church today are being hindered by the very church itself or Christians themselves. How does that happen? Well, one good example among all of the other controversial subjects going on in the world right now, one of the hottest topics is politics. <laughs> politics. One of the reasons why people don't come to church is because they say church is too political, one reason or another. I'm not taking a stand on anything right now. I love Republicans. I love liberals. I love everybody in between, okay? So let's just keep that clear. I'm not taking a stand on anything right now. All I am saying, you can have your opinion. You can take your, have your convictions wherever you stand. But what matters is how the people who call themselves God's church deal with it, with each other and out in the world. So this whole business of mask, don't mask, vaccinate, don't vaccinate, what picture has the church shown the world? It's not about yes, no, get it, don't get it. It's about how have we handled it. If, if the church is the very presence of God, I would like to imagine, what would Jesus say? Not like, okay, you know, never mind, we're not going there. Okay, but the point is, is that there are still things that hinder people from coming to the church. That's our own doing. 
So we need to be so, so, so careful that we meet people with compassion and mercy and the truth of God's word in a loving fashion, not our opinion, and not with legalism, and not with judgment. So in our application, as we close, and I'm sorry I'm keeping us a little bit, (laughs) um, next week's destination is Golgotha. And like I said, this is the place where Jesus was crucified, where he atoned for our sins. His sacrifice is an invitation to an intimate relationship with God. And when we choose to follow him, when we lay our lives down, when we accept Christ as master, as Lord, as savior of our lives, and we submit to him, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of us and we become the temple. We are now the temple of God. It said, the Bible tells us, um, Paul tells us in Corinthians, he says, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the spirit of God lives in you and that our body is actually the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. Oh my goodness. We are now the temple. That holy of holies is in us. So much more important when we stop to consider how we present ourselves to the world because our life on the outside, how we are salt and light, how we do things, that's our outer courts. That's the court of the Gentiles. Are we letting people in or are we hindering them? It is something to think about how we interact with people. So we get to cleanse our temple, so to speak. Let Christ cleanse our temple. Evaluate if there's any impurities in our salt. If we have diluted our salt, if we are cutting off the oxygen flow to the flame that is in us, you know, which happens by not only in bringing worldly things in, but not staying connected to God and his word, not staying connected to our community, to our Bible studies um, with each other and, and all of that. And as we go out into the world, when we are at work in school, in Walmart, in the bank, in McDonald's, and wherever we are, are we, are we approachable? Are we safe? Are we a person that someone can come to who needs hope and healing? As we close today, um, I actually want to close with a music video. It's by David Crowder. Um, It's called Come As You Are. And one of the reasons why I chose this is because that's what Jesus tells us. We don't have to fix ourselves up. You know, we don't have to worry about how we look and and, and what we sound like to come to him. He he, He just says, come as you are. Dirty and broken and messed up. And... This is personal to me, partially because of the fact that my dad, um, my dad was growing up in my entire life, absolutely refused to go to church. His history was with the Greek Orthodox Church, and he thought all churches were that way. He thought all, all pastors dressed that way, all churches were decorated that way, and he was adamantly opposed to organized religion. So when my mom and I came here for the first time, it was a way long time ago, when we came to Crossroads for the first time, because we, we came by invitation, um, we discovered that you didn't have to get dressed up. You know, it's like you could come in your Levi's. And so we go home and we tell my dad, we're like, Dad, you got to come to this church. It's okay. The pastor wears jeans. <laughs> 
And you can wear your sweats and, 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 there's coffee and donuts. Like if that, if the sweats weren't going to get them, the coffee and donuts were. So <laughs> dad tested it out. He came the next weekend in his sweats. <laughs> and you know what? This was the only church that my dad ever came to. And he came as long as he could before he died. We as a church are not perfect. But it is our goal to demonstrate Christ's heart and what the church is supposed to be and what Christ spent time in Jerusalem teaching his disciples and hopefully the Pharisees. Because I guarantee you, there may have been some Pharisees that shut him out, but there were some Pharisees who heard and it changed them too. So let's just listen to the song and if you know it, sing along with it. And then when we're done, we'll come up and pray and close out. From wherever you've been Come broken hearted Let rescue begin Come find your mercy Oh sinner come kneel Earth has no sorrow That heaven can't heal So lay down your Lay down your 
Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you that we can come to you as we are. You are the one who heals. You are the one who brings hope. You are the one who can help us become the people that you created us to be from the very beginning. A masterpiece created for good works that you planned long ago. And that you sent your son to show us the way is absolutely phenomenal. And so, Lord, I just pray if there's anybody here today who, who just needs that, that they would reach out and grab it. And thank you that you make your presence known. And I pray as a church for us and for all of the Christian churches all over the world, Lord, that we would be light and we would be salt and we would be the place where people go to for safety and for help and that we would stand up in your truth, in your wisdom, with love and compassion. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys for joining us today. Um, and as always, if you ever have any questions or you need help with anything, that is why we are here. Please let us know. Thanks, guys. See you next week.